This morning we're finishing our teaching series on the Beatitudes, of course, with the final Beatitude. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And honestly, I think it has a lot to do with shame. Shame. So this past week, uh, Rach and I and the boys were at uh, a Lehigh Valley Iron Pigs game. And you know how they love to, in between innings, scan the crowd and find people and try to make them do silly things? This is like my greatest fear. I love baseball games, but I don't want the camera coming to me at any point in that process. Now, if you know my oldest son, Jackson, all he wants is the camera to find him. And so he sits next to me all the time. And so my prayer is... God, would you honor Jackson's desire by getting him and cutting me off, right? So so whenever they want to dance, Jackson is dancing, and, you know, he would say this if he was here. He and I, uh, at dancing, we're about the same level, which is a zero, Uh, but he doesn't care. He has no shame. He just wants to be on the TV. I have no desire to be on the TV in that way, you know, and you might be like me. When we were in Florida, we went to see uh, the lower minor league levels of the Phillies play, and I think we were the only people in attendance. We were on the TV four or five times, a little less shameful. Last year, we took the boys to a Philadelphia 76ers game, uh, and that wasn't shameful, although if you know the Sixers, it probably was shameful for me to even subject my family to that. But they got to this moment where they're standing around the crowd, and there's this large man um, who has his shirt off and is doing a crazy, crazy dance. And of course, the crowd is erupting in laughter. And I'm thinking to myself, oh my goodness, I can't believe he's doing this and doing all, these, all this stuff. And then they scan over to a, to a larger woman and she stands up and she starts doing it too. And they're dancing back and forth. They go back and forth. And we happened to run into the lady afterwards and she was overjoyed that she was on the camera. And she, she was, oh, she, gosh, she must have been 80 years old. And she couldn't believe that they put her up there and how this was great fun for the kids. And all the time I'm thinking, this lady has no shame. How can she do this, you know? And I think what we'll find out this morning is the key to enduring persecution is to have no shame. We need to be a little bit more like the people um, who are willing to get on the jumbotron and dance crazy. In fact, if there was a jumbotron in ancient Israel when the Ark of the Covenant was coming back into Jerusalem, they would have caught David dancing like a crazy man. So much so that his wife said to him, you're making a fool of yourself. And he said to her, I can't contain my love for God. And I think for us, the key to enduring persecution is all about being so firm in our identity in Christ that we can't be shamed by any outside force who would desire to do it. We'll get there, but we need to take some steps to get to that process. So this morning, we want to look at this idea of blessed are the persecuted. We reviewed a little bit in our prayer time, but let's just go back through the Beatitudes. We understand there's some logical order to what Jesus is saying here as he introduces his great sermon on the mount as it's come to be known. He starts out by saying, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. In other words, if you want to have anything to do with God's kingdom, you've got to understand that you are bankrupt. You've got nothing to offer God. And it's at that stage of being a spiritual beggar that God gives you everything. 
And unless and until we're ready and willing to admit our spiritual bankruptcy, we can't experience the kingdom. Spiritual bankruptcy naturally leads us to mourn over our sinfulness. We mourn that we're sinful. We mourn that our sin hurts other people. We mourn that our sin costs Jesus His life. We're broken over our sin. Our poverty in spirit, our brokenness over our sin lead us to be people who are classified as being meek, like wild horses who are tamed by the Spirit. We have realized under our control we are doing nothing but being wild and crazy. But under the control of the Spirit, we can be what we were created to be. And as we engage in that process, our hunger and thirst for the approval and acceptance that God offers through Christ's work on the cross grows and grows and is unquenchable and uh, yet still completely attainable. As our mind is driven towards being accepted by God rather than accepted by our peers. Approved by God rather than approved by our vocation or our status or our monetary wealth. And this leads us to be merciful because we realize that our approval and acceptance by God is the result of His great and vast mercy for us. That what we have earned is death, but what we have been given is life. And so as we interact with other people, we can help but be nothing other than merciful with them because this is how God has been with us. And then the great summary statement, blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. But purity in heart is brought to us only through Jesus. That God has made peace with us through the work of Jesus and called us children of God. And then therefore, as we learned the past two weeks, this makes us peacemakers. Cultivating peace between God and others and also working for peace with ourselves and others. We said as we finished last week that being a peacemaker will always result in persecution. And that's where we finished this morning. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Blessed are those who are persecuted. We need to ask a couple of questions about this. Why are they blessed? Why does persecution even happen? Now, persecution can happen for a multitude of reasons. Obviously, we're focusing on being persecuted for Christian faith here. So we need to think about it in that context. How does persecution happen for Christian faith? And this isn't a full exhaustive list, but I want to give you three suggestions this morning as to why it happens. The first two are what I would call your fault, right? Or my fault. The last one is Jesus' fault, all right? The first two are Jesus, are your fault. The last one is Jesus' fault. One of the first reasons that Christians are often persecuted in our world is because we are hypocrites, right? That's our fault. Be careful here to understand that Jesus did not say, blessed are those who are persecuted because you are a hypocrite. doesn't say that, right? Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness, right? 
And there's a difference we'll find between our righteousness and the righteousness of Christ, which is what he's actually talking about here. It is not blessed when you are persecuted for being a hypocrite. Hypocrites are people who draw attention to themselves to show people their righteousness. It's those people who want to flaunt their faith and their righteousness, but at the same time, their unrighteousness is on full display for the whole world. We see that constantly in the news anymore with this drive, somehow drive amongst Christian leaders to have a public persona. I think it's scary, dangerous. And so many of them have fallen flat in front of so many people and been called rightly hypocrites because they have sought to show their righteousness in front of everyone else rather than to just be a servant of Jesus where they've been called. And instead, both their unrighteousness and righteousness are proclaimed in front of the whole world. Now, you might be thinking this. Well, are you saying that we've got to be perfect then to live public Christian lives? And the answer, of course, is no. You're not, you're not not a hypocrite because you are perfect. You're not a hypocrite because your life is characterized or flavored by the Beatitudes, not by your own righteousness. Do you see this? Right? You can't be called a hypocrite if you lead with the fact that you are wildly sinful and completely unacceptable to God. The problem is, publicly, we don't lead with that. That one's buried in the back pocket. It's the trump card in case we screw up. Can I suggest to you in your public life that you ought to lead with that and set everyone at ease? Because instantly when you declare that front and center, you can't be a hypocrite, right? Matter of fact, you are a truth teller at that point because what's going to happen is they are going to see, if you're like me, your righteousness and your unrighteousness. And they're going to say, That's exactly what they said. I haven't experienced Christianity in this way before. I thought you had to live up to a certain standard. And then you remind them, oh, the Beatitudes isn't about standards. It's about that Jesus has done for us. And satisfying, attaining peace with God. See, blessed are those who are persecuted for Christ's righteousness, not for their own. It's not blessed to be a hypocrite and be persecuted. Lots of people are claiming persecution when they are, in fact, hypocrites. And to me, they've earned that. I'm not suggesting people ought to be mean and rude and do awful things. But you have said something that's not true. So how do you avoid hypocrisy? Let's make a quick statement here. A couple of things. You avoid hypocrisy, obviously, by leading with your sinfulness. But you also do it by being apologetic. Right? You actually have the audacity to apologize when you sin against people. And you're actually approachable. You're not this Christian who is standoffish and over there giving off the holy beam and no one knows anything about them and they seem so other. You're actually approachable. And you actually cultivate genuine relationships. And the people around you would actually say that, you know, one of the great characteristics that I see from their life is humility. When those things are true, (laughs) you're going to be winsome, not hypocritical. Persecution definitely comes in the form of hypocrisy. Now, that being said, we need to make one caveat, right? One disclaimer here. The truth is that the world loves to call all Christians hypocrites, no matter what. So, just because someone calls you a hypocrite doesn't make you one. And you only know this if you lead with your sinfulness. Second thing that I think is our fault. Being persecuted for being obnoxious. 
Can I just say it bluntly? <laughs> Sometimes Christians are persecuted because we are just flat out obnoxious. It is our fault when we are persecuted for being obnoxious. Obnoxious Christians are actually, in my mind, counterproductive to the gospel. Counterproductive to the kingdom. Listen to what Paul says to the, to the church at Thessalonica in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 11 and 12. Listen to this. I'll start with verse 9. Now about your love for one another, we do not need to write you for yourselves. You yourselves have been taught by God to love each other. And in fact, you do love all of God's family throughout Macedonia. Yet we urge you, brothers and sisters, to do so more and more. How do you love more and more? Verse 11, to make it your ambition to lead a quiet life, you should mind your own business and work with your hands, just as we told you, so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders and so that you will not be dependent on anyone. Live a quiet life. Make it your full ambition. Now, is Paul saying you should never tell anyone about Jesus? Of course not. It's not what he's saying. But what he's saying is, if you are talk, 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 and have no flavor of life pouring out on all of these people, then there's no backdrop for any part of your message, and therefore you are not winning the right to be heard, and the righteousness of Christ that comes from your life is not flavoring it in such a way that it is drawing people to Jesus. Seems to me that when Paul's talking to the Thessalonians, that they were being a little bit obnoxious in their speech. They were loving people, but he said if you really want to love them, Make it your ambition to live a quiet life, to win the right to be heard. Listen, the gospel is good news, right? And if you cannot communicate the gospel, which by simple definition is good news, in a way that is good news to people, then something is either wrong with you or your understanding of the gospel. Truth? right? See, gospel ambassadors are meant to be winsome in their approach to people not pushy with people. I defy you to find in the, word, the ministry of Jesus that's recorded in the Scriptures a time when Jesus was ultra pushy with people. Now you might say, well, he offended lots of people. Of course he offended lots of people. By telling the truth. Most always by answering their questions. So this is the ministry of Jesus. He tells what is truth, and the crowds come to Him. And many times when He speaks truth, the crowds are deeply offended by it, and they leave. And guess what? Jesus is okay with that. For us sometimes, we are so desperate to win the argument that we chase them down as they're walking away and give them two or three more pounds in the back of the head with our verbal assault on them. You know, Jesus said in a moment of depth of teaching, unless you eat my body and uh, drink my blood, you can't be part of this kingdom. And John's Gospel tells us that tons of people walked away. And Jesus kept on teaching. He kept on doing His ministry. In fact, that very last moment of His life, or last moment of confrontation before His death on the cross, when Pilate says, hey, are these charges against you true? Are you the king they claim you are? He simply says to Pilate, what you say is true. 
he's constantly answering questions with truth that is wildly offensive to lots of people, right? It is fine to offend. It is not fine to be obnoxious and to pursue people in order to offend them. There was a baseball player for the New York Yankees. Uh, He was one of their star players in the 1999 World Series. And I only know this because I was in college and my roommates were huge Yankees fans, and they loved this guy. His name was Chad Curtis, and he hit like a walk-off home run in the World Series. Huge star. At the end of that year, they, they got rid of him. And stories came out later that Chad Curtis was a devoted follower of Jesus. Uh, but he was completely and entirely obnoxious in the clubhouse about it. So much so that the team couldn't bear to have him there anymore. Can you imagine that, Jesus, that someone who is trying to make Jesus known and has the chance to build daily relationships instead is known by his obnoxious preaching, constantly condemning people? rather than building foundations of trust and love. Blessed persecution is not for being hypocritical. It's not for being obnoxious. But it is for having the righteousness of Christ. Jesus says in Matthew's Gospel, blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness. The next verse down, he says, blessed are those who are persecuted, insulted, accused of evil because of me. The understanding being that this is not your righteousness, but the righteousness of Jesus. Paul writes it this way in 2 Timothy 3, verse 12. For everyone who desires to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Think about the expanse of that statement. Everyone will be. Every person who desires to live a godly life in Christ Jesus. In other words, not on your own religious effort, your own religious basis, your own list of good things that you've done for God, but actually the righteousness of Jesus being lived through you by the work of the Spirit. Everyone who desires that will be persecuted. This is a guarantee, a lock. It's done, sealed, delivered. This is what it means to be persecuted because of Christ's righteousness. I think there are two implications in that verse and really in the the verse that's at the end of the section on the Beatitudes. The first is, and this is so interesting to me, that persecution has as much, if not more, to do with your conduct than with your proclamation. Paul is speaking to a pastor when he writes to Timothy. And he doesn't say, uh, for everyone who desires to go out and proclaim the gospel will be persecuted. Now, listen, they'll be persecuted for certain, right? But he does say to this young pastor, anyone who wants to live a godly life, you can guarantee you're going to be persecuted. That your conduct actually draws persecution. And you need to go no, you know, it's no further into the story of Scripture than the first children, right? Cain and Abel. Abel suffers persecution at the hands of Cain, not because of a message he preaches, but because of his desire to honor God with his life and proper sacrifice. At the end of the day, simply because this brother 
wanted to honor God and wanted to give the right kind of sacrifice, it cost him his life. I think sometimes we get this persecution thing messed up. Well, that's for people out there just, you know, standing on the corner, speaking the gospel, proclaiming the name of Jesus. I don't have that kind of faith. What Paul is talking about, what Jesus is talking about is, if you have the audacity to attempt to center your life on Jesus, the world is going to be on you like white on rice. It's going to happen because of your conduct. Think about it this way. If you are an hourly worker, you get paid by the hour, and you're at work, and you're deciding in this kind of holistic way of understanding, how do I honor God in my work? And you come to the conclusion, I think rightly so, that, hey, I'm being paid. I'm going to work hard for my entire shift. I'm not going to troll the internet. I'm not going to send emails. I'm not going to make Facebook posts. But you try to do that, and you see what your coworkers will say to you. Right? Instant persecution. Now, it's not going to look like persecution where they're threatening your life and imprisoning you because you mentioned the name of Jesus. They're going to say, hey, what are you trying to do? You're trying to show me up? Trying to impress the boss and make me look bad here? Knock it off. We're all in the same playing field here. Right? And what is the easiest thing to do? Oh, yeah, you're right. Right? Because we're so interested in the approval of others rather than the approval that we already have with God. Now, maybe you don't punch the clock hourly. Maybe you are management. Maybe you are salaried. And this is how it happens, right? The company demands your soul when you are salaried because they have already bought it, right? So overtime, that doesn't matter. You've signed the contract, you're in. What would it mean for you to say to your boss, you know what? I'm ordering my life right. I value my family. I'm not going to be on call 24 hours a day. When I go on vacation, I'm going to be on vacation. I'm going to set these boundaries and priorities in my life. What's your boss say to a statement like that? Who do you think you are, right? We all have to do what we have to do to make this company successful. Because for them, their identity is in the company, not in Christ. How could you ever do something like that? And you're going to be persecuted for it. And it could even cost you a promotion. And it could even cost you a raise. And it could even cost you a job. But what does it mean to honor Christ with your life? Right? Your conduct is going to bring about persecution if you honor Christ with your life. Now you're saying, well, it doesn't really ever happen to me. That's damning for all of us, isn't it? We're thinking, oh, my boss, never. These people never say. Because for most of us, we have compartmentalized our life in such a way that we do our God thing on our own time and our world thing when we're with the world. And never the two paths should cross. And so our lives are free from persecution in many ways, and we like it that way. It is comfortable that way. Second implication, I think, from this statement, that anyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, is that the object of persecution is actually not you. It's Jesus himself. Isn't it so interesting that when Paul is brutally persecuting the church, He has that moment on the road to Damascus where Jesus shows himself. And what does Jesus say? Hey, stop killing my friends. Stop imprisoning my messengers. 
Acts 9.4, Paul says, why are you persecuting me? Paul understood exactly what he meant. And we'll go on to write countlessly and time after time that the persecution of Christians is a means to an end. You were not the object, the target. You were the means of targeting Jesus himself. And we act, and we ask ourselves all the time, well, why is this happening? Why are people persecuting me? Why is this happening? The, psalm, the psalmist asks these kind of questions too. In Psalm 119, verse 86, the psalmist says, listen, God, I'm being persecuted without cause. Right? He's basically thinking to himself, what did I do? I'm just trying to live the right kind of life here, and all of this stuff is happening to me. And I think sometimes we get caught up in that. We say something or do something, and all of a sudden this attack comes from left field, and we're like, what is this all about? I thought you were my friend, and you're saying this to me? I thought we had a relationship, and this is happening. What we have to understand, church, is that there is a massive battle going on in our world. We most of the time remain unplugged from it. But there is a spiritual battle of kingdoms in conflict, the kingdom of Satan, the kingdom of Jesus, massively, constantly in conflict and warfare. And persecution is the, is the earthly manifestation of this happening in our world. It's not that your friend decided to hate you and persecute you. It's that they were the object of spiritual warfare in your life. Massive amount of kingdom and conflict. This starts all the way back in Genesis. Genesis 3.15. Listen to this. God is dealing with the serpent, dealing with Adam and Eve. And this is what He says. I will put enmity between you, this is the serpent, Satan, and the woman, and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike His heel. In other words, from the third chapter of all of Scripture, the conflict is well underway. That the kingdom of Satan is against the kingdom of God. The sons and daughters of God against the sons and daughters of Satan. And ultimately, the Antichrist, the spirits of the Antichrist in the world against Jesus Himself. They will strike the heel of Jesus, but Jesus will crush the head of them. This is the conflict that when you say Jesus is Lord you are thrust right into. In Galatians chapter 4, this is what Paul writes. He's talking about Isaac. Verse 29, At that time, the son born according to the flesh, Ishmael, persecuted the son born by the power of the Spirit, Isaac. And this makes this unbelievable statement at the end of that. It is the same now. Right? In other words, what you are facing is no different than Genesis 3.15 all the way up through Ishmael and Isaac, all the way up through the crucifixion, so forth and so on. We are cast in the middle of this massive conflict. And one of the great ways that Satan strikes at the heel of Jesus, first and foremost is the cross, but it also is the persecution of the children of God. And so we should never be surprised when persecution happens. We should never be caught off guard by persecution in our life. In fact, the absence of persecution should throw us off guard. It should be a massive red flag in our life. Jesus, 
uh, in Luke's recording of the Beatitudes, after he gives the Beatitudes, he makes some statements of woe. And he says in Luke 6, verse 26, Woe to you if everyone speaks good of you. Man, what a statement. Can I just be honest with you for a minute? There's nothing I would like more in my life than for everyone to speak good of me. And Jesus says, woe to you if everyone speaks good of you. Because the model of Jesus is those who are following the King are both going to attract and repel people at the same time. This is the model of Jesus. It's attracting huge amounts of crowds and repelling people at the same time. If both of these things are not happening in your life, then something is out of whack. If you are not attracting people to the winsome nature of the Gospel in your life, then something is missing. The same level of people are not being repelled by the way you are carrying yourself, and something is off too. I love what Tim Keller said. This is, a, this is one of the statements I can make as a pastor because I can tell you that Tim Keller said it. He said, he said, if you are always being persecuted, you're probably obnoxious. If you are never being persecuted, you're probably a coward. If you are always being persecuted, you're probably obnoxious. If, you've ne- if you're never being persecuted, you're probably a coward. Jesus, in explaining this beatitude, this is what he says in verse 11 of Matthew 5, Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you. This is how persecution happens. Right? Persecution in its literal sense is a physical turmoil brought against someone. So, that usually does not happen in our current context. We have moments with stories like Columbine where students are killed because of their unwillingness to deny Christ, but usually that's something that happens in foreign soils. Statistic that that in the the 20th century, there were more martyrs for Christian faith than in every other century before combined. While it is not prevalent in our world, it is radically prevalent around the world. So can I suggest to you that when you are catching a nasty glance from a neighbor or a mean word from a coworker, or a wrong accusation from another, can you remember your brothers and sisters in Nigeria, in China, in Iraq, in Iran, and all the other places who for you who gets a nasty glance for them loses their head? Can I even challenge you to dig into the persecuted church, to find a people group who are being persecuted because of their Christian faith, to learn about them and to commit to pray for them regularly? It's a great Christian shame in our world that the church is so segregated that we have no knowledge of the persecution that our brothers and sisters are facing in the world. For us, it's much more normal for the other two things to happen, the insult or the accusation of evil. The word insult actually means to show your teeth. My sister used to have a Jack Russell Terrier who would show his teeth all the time. It didn't matter. Like, so he, if you said certain words, he would just show his teeth at you. He was ready to fight constantly. He, he was a very nervous dog, and so he always licked his paws. I don't know what made all this happen. But if you would say the word paw to him, he would show his teeth and growl at you. We made the mistake one time of watching him while she was away. I was at the first job. My first job as, as, a, 
working for a church, and the chairman of the elder board, leader of the church, came to the house to drop something off, and he opened the door, and for whatever reason, this dog was angry, and it attacked him and started biting him, and like, I never lived it down. Right? But this is kind of the picture of the, in, the way we should expect to be insulted for living according to God, that we should not be caught off guard when we say or do something that we think is innocent and the world shows its teeth, right? In the same way Paul said, or Jesus says that they'll accuse you of evil. And this, I don't think, normally isn't actually like bringing charges against you when it's not happening, although that certainly could be the case. I think it more often happens in making assumptions about our motives or calling us disingenuous. Happens something like this, right? Oh, you're a Christian, so you hate science. Oh, you're a Christian, so you don't care about poor people. Oh, you're a Christian, so you think you're better than me. You get lumped into all of these boats that certain people have unfortunately created the category, but then the world just lumps us all in. It's persecution. It's slandering your character. You didn't do anything to earn or deserve that, but you're lumped right into it. Oh, you're one of them. You know? This is how persecution happens in our world. And so, as we close this morning, Jesus gives us one single command as the means by which we counteract persecution in our world. And the command is for us to rejoice. Now, this is so countercultural, isn't it? Hey, you're being persecuted. Now, when he's speaking to first century Christians, he's basically saying, they're going to drag you through the streets and they're going to kill you. And you should be really happy about it. The, the word for rejoice is agalaiao, the Greek word. It means to be exceedingly happy, right? Not just, hey, you should put a smile on your face. It means to dance and skip and sing and celebrate in the streets. It means to act like you've won the lottery when you get persecuted. Why would you rejoice this way? First, I think you rejoice this way because when you are persecuted, it is one more act of proof that what Christ has done in you is real. And what could be a more wonderful thought? The second is that in the kingdom economy of Jesus, to be shamed is actually to be honored. In the eastern world of Jesus, the first century world of Jesus, the world of honor and shame, where to be shamed publicly was for your life to be over, Jesus is actually saying that the highest honor is to be publicly shamed. And how does he have the right to say that? Because he was shamed to the point of death. And because of that, Paul writes, he was lifted up to the highest place of honor. You are honored in your shame because your identity is not in what this world says you are, but in what God knows you are, and you know you are in Christ Jesus. This is why Paul can actually write to the Philippians that it has been granted to you to be persecuted. In other words, that those who God has allowed persecution to come to have received a high honor. That God has entrusted them with this opportunity. 
You're saying opportunity? Yeah. I think the third reason we rejoice at persecution is because perhaps it is the greatest public platform for the gospel. Bar none. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 9 and 10, he's being a little sarcastic with the Corinthians as he likes to be. But he says to them, hey, hey, us apostles, we're getting drugged through the streets like a big spectacle. Like prisoners being taken to the arena, he says. And the word spectacle was often used in, in Roman literature of the day in just that way. Generals capturing prisoners, prisoners of war, cities conquered, parading them through the streets so that everyone could see their power over them ultimately to take them to the arena where they would be thrown in with lions or wild beasts or gladiators to be killed and executed. Paul follows that statement by saying, but we're fools for Christ. Because what he is saying is, while being paraded through the streets might show the world some imperial power, it also shows the world the resolve of the captives of Christ. In this way, the persecution becomes the great platform for the gospel. Jesus on the cross, being wildly persecuted, not just physically, but verbally harassed and assaulted. Bearing it and taking it and honoring God. What does the Roman centurion say while watching this spectacle? Surely this man was the Son of God. Did Jesus declare it from the cross? No but he carried himself through persecution. And so for us as a church, in the cruciform pattern of Jesus, we endure and take the persecution that the world heaves on us so that by chance, by grace, by some exuding of of gospel and kingdom from us and through the work of the Spirit in us, the gospel might be made known to onlookers, to the world, to even our persecutors who were called to pray for. Because our hope is that God might save them rather than spare us. Can you imagine? And at the end of the day, the final reason we rejoice is we've got nothing to lose. Our inheritance is certain. It is cemented. It is not our 401k in the stock market that goes up and down. It is guaranteed. And so, therefore, we have nothing to lose. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones was a doctor in England, and he felt a strong call to to be a pastor. And so, after a few years of being a doctor and all the training and, and everything that went with it, he set that aside and he pursued ministry as a pastor. Took a 90% cut in pay. Lost tons of friends. Lost the respect of the world. And towards the end of his ministry, a reporter came to him because he or she wanted to do a story on did this guy make a good decision or not. And the reporter asked Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, hey, looking back on it, was it worth it? Was the decision you made worth it? And this is what Lloyd-Jones said. I lost nothing, and I gained everything. Everything which I lost, I used to count on for peace. And now I have found that peace exists alone in Jesus. Friends, 
Be like Paul, who said, For I am not ashamed of the Gospel. It is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. This is why at the end of the Beatitudes, assuring them of persecution, Jesus says, so go into the world assured of all of this, empowered by the Spirit, and be salt and light for the kingdom. This is our charge. Straight into the battle. Can I pray with you?